0: Welcome back to bright and sunny Huntsville, Alabama. I'm Sam, the resident, and I'm joined as always by our minister to young adults, John Lemons. John, how are you doing on this beautiful day today?
1: I'm doing well, man. And um, you kind of got me a couple of weeks ago because I, I called it a beautiful day and you were like, no, it's raining outside. And I was like, <laughs> well, it'll be a beautiful day when people listen to this. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing right now. I mean, it, we just got through with the storm, but I would I would suspect the temperature is probably really nice outside.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was really nice earlier, um, and talk about nice weather. We had a Father's Day yesterday, and I don't think you could ask for a better day.
1: It was a gorgeous day. It was a wonderful afternoon, and honestly, most of the weekend was really good. We were supposed to get a bunch of rain starting Saturday and carrying on into this week, and we got a reprieve from that on Sunday. It was a gorgeous day.
0: Mm -hmm. So I was teaching in um, LifePoint, one of our young adult classes, and Elaine asked all the fathers, if you didn't have your wives sitting in the room, what would your perfect Father's Day look like? So, John, what does your perfect Father's Day look like?
1: Man, shoot, I don't know. Um, I I feel like I'm pretty low-maintenance with that kind of stuff now mm-hmm. in my older age. I think when I was like 26, I would have had like a list of like... I think I've said before on one of the podcasts, I'm, I'm kind of the, everything's got to be a Hallmark commercial kind of person. <laughs> mm-hmm. But not so much anymore. Um, I'm really content on you know, holidays and birthdays and stuff like that to just be like, hey, let's let's have a good meal. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I mean, Emily, my wife was like, what do you want? And I was like, how about your biscuits and gravy? Because it's one of my favorite things that she makes. And we had that and I watched some baseball. And I mean, that was that, man. It was, it was I, I wouldn't have asked for really anything else because I'm at the point in life where there are some things like I really want that I just don't need, like mm-hmm. the new PlayStation. Um, and then there's other things that like, if there's something I really want, I'll just get it, you know, yeah. I mean, except for like a Tesla or something. But, <laughs> you know, within reason, I, mm-hmm. I don't wait for stuff any, <laughs> anymore. So they, yeah. like I just get the birthdays and holidays. I'm just like, eh, I don't really want anything. Just
0: let's enjoy the day. Yeah. Just feed me well. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that but- I mean, I guess that's not a great answer, but that's mm-hmm. my answer.
0: Yeah. Well, you do have a pool, right? So today or yesterday could have been a great day, or was it a little chilly?
1: Oh, no, it's definitely chilly. I mean, it's, um, I do have a pool. The backyard is shaded. So I always say, unless it's like 90 or 95 degrees outside, which it hasn't been yet this year, Mm -hmm. uh, the pool is not refreshing. You, (laughs) it is, it is a polar bear challenge. It is like jumping into a vat of ice. Um, Now I'm a little, my kids tease me and they're like, you're so weak or whatever, but. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to like, if I, if I just get in, I have to psych myself into jumping in when it's, when it's that chilly and, um, and I'll, I'll stay, the trick is like, I'll jump in I'll stay under as long as I can, let my body acclimate. And then I'll, I'll swim, you know, three or four laps. And by that point, usually like I'm, I've adjusted to the water. Um, and then I'll get into a float and read or whatever. And that feels decent until it's time to you know, get out. (laughs) Mm. And then it's like, oh, the water's cold again. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I've I've always wanted a pool, but I've heard from people who have one that it's kind of like owning a pickup truck when you have a pool, like a pickup truck, everyone wants to use it or everyone's like, hey, so you have a pool. Uh, Does it get a lot of use? Can I use it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and more than that, it is a, there's a ton of maintenance to it, but we just upgraded to a salt system this year. And if if anybody out there is thinking about getting a pool, I cannot recommend a salt system enough just because it takes the maintenance. I mean it's a night and day difference. Like I used to tell people if I didn't already have a pool, like if everyone already one there when we bought the house, I wouldn't want one. Mm-hmm. But I I would I would change my answer because of just how maintenance free it is having a salt system.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Well that's great. I guess that's our weekly recap of get to know John and Sam. You know, we've the longer we do this podcast, the more often we run into people who say, hey, I listened to this episode. This was really great. And I can't tell you how many people have said this podcast is great because I feel like I know you and John a whole lot better. So now you know that John has a pool. Uh, so ask him questions about how the salt water is awesome. does so yeah. your weekly check in with us? That's I mean, that's hey, cool to know. So mm-hmm. I feel like I'm like, that makes me want to have like
1: a live episode and have people call in or whatever, because... I honestly don't, like, a few people will talk to me, and I had, you know, when we started season two, I, I was getting, like, a couple of comments every week, and then as the season went on, I, I wasn't getting any more, so I kind of got to the point where I was like, "Is pe- are people still listening? But um, mm-hmm. I will say this, so we, we record these about two weeks or so before we put them out, and so this is episode three of this, this series, and episode one, Patrick just edited and sent to us for listening, and... Not only does he do our sound editing, but not all of the music, but some of the music, he he does that himself as well. He composes. And he composed the the theme song for for this series. And it, <laughs> I heard it today for the first time. And I just laughed so hard. And it, it's amazing um, because when we did episode one, we said, this is Holy Heresies. And we were we were like, you know, it's kind of like an exclamation, like, Holy Heresies, Batman. And so he took that and used it as the inspiration for his song. By now, you have heard it, listener. If you if you've listened to all the episodes, you've heard it three times, and hopefully, you can hear the the Batman influence from the old nineteen sixties Batman show. And when I heard it, I just I just thought it was a stroke of genius. So, Patrick, mm-hmm. shout out to you. Does a great job. Uh, so, again, Patrick Chester does all our editing. Does some music composition himself as well. So, uh, use him. I mean, like it. It's been a joy using him for for this and and seeing that gift of His um, be utilized t- towards this end in, in our ministry. So uh, I, I will just shout His praises and mm-hmm. and invite anybody else to uh, to reach out to Him and connect on Him on that kind of stuff too.
0: And it's probably a good point to say that as we're coming back from the pandemic, you know, the podcast was good for a lot of people who just didn't get to see us a lot, get to know who we are. But as we're getting back, you know, this is a good time to re-engage with the people in your classes, in your neighborhood, and yeah. see what they get excited about and what makes them tick. You know, we we discovered, I mean, Patrick already knew he was a talent, hopefully, but we discovered him. And it was amazing. We're like, he this great thing sitting right under our noses and we had no idea. So just to say, get to know the people around you. Uh, really invest. I think we all real le- learned a lot of hard lessons about being in community while we couldn't be in community. So what a great time to re-engage but, and know them deeply, not just surface level or how's the weather, but know them deeply and what makes them tick. And on that, talking about episode three, we are indeed in episode three of our four-week series, Holy Heresies, Batman! With an exclamation. Mm. It's a podcast about the things we believe that perhaps we shouldn't believe. You know, echoes of heresy in a lot of way. And we're talking heresies and we're walking through the book counterfeit counterfeit christianity by one mr roger Yolson, e. who was one of my former professors and this will probably be a little bit of an easier episode than last week so we're we're doing this topic the heresies because many of us hold some of these beliefs within ourselves often without knowing that we're doing it and many times without knowing that it's the wrong thing to do so we talk about vestiges or tentacles of these ancient heresies that still exist and live in our lives in certain ways and when we think about heresies, we think about these ancient things, but they certainly aren't dead. And while there's no one coming after you and your incorrect beliefs, you need to examine your beliefs. I think it's healthy for us to sit back and examine what do we believe about certain things and why. What do we believe in music, culture, church, worship, and theology? And if you or someone believe one of these things that we're talking about, you're not a heretic. We just have a new opportunity to have a discussion and a conversation about why do we believe things, what probably should we believe, and then let's move forward together
1: yeah yeah you can have a heretical belief that doesn't necessarily make you a heretic i think what we talked about early yeah. on what makes you a heretic is if you teach it mm-hmm. and are shown your incorrection, in yet continue to teach it then that's kind of when you cross into being a heretic uh, but I, you know it's funny because i was listening to the end of straight out of context our previous series and there was a statement i made that i was like i might have just made a heretical statement there <laughs> Um, and it was just because I, you know, I mean, speaking off the cuff, you're going to do things like that. And and, mm-hmm. and that's what it was. So, and, and then I'll add Sam, you know, we talked about these being tentacles or echoes of heresy, but we've used the word tentacles of, of heresy, things that have kind of survived, mm-hmm. even though something might've, have, might've have been declared a, a, a heresy at some point in time. Um, and the way I think about that is, you know, I think most people are familiar with walking on the beach. And if you see a, Jellyfish that's washed up on shore. The jellyfish might be dead, but you can still be stung by the tentacles of the jellyfish. Or if you squash a bee or a wasp, you can still be stung. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of the idea here: is these are things that that yeah, we know these are heresies, but you know the the tentacles of them may still you know be damaging and harmful. And so that's why we're addressing this. Mm-hmm.
0: And much like we talked about last week, sometimes these beliefs that we have we have them innocently, largely out of just ignorance. We just don't know. You know, we were raised in a place that might have these vestiges left over. And so that's why it's important to go back and look at tradition of the church and see, well, what are the places where people, you know, fell off the path or maybe, you know, began to fall off the path and other people said, whoa, 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 let's bring it back. This is what we all believe is the right way. Uh, Let's get back on this right way together. So you're probably wondering at this point, why even do all of this in the first place? Why do we need to do theology, especially if you're not a pastor or you're not a church leader? And I, I found this really great article this week about Martin Luther, and it said, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, his theological insights, which fueled the Re- Reformation, were not the result of light thinking about Scripture. They were the result of hard mental work. I was reminded uh, while reading this article about Luther, um, just all of these things and how much he's brought to it because he took the time to think. And the context of the article was, if Luther had a cell phone, would he have produced any of these or would he have been caught up in all of the distractions that go along with having a cell phone? The article went on to say that Christians are meant to think deeply about scripture and about faith and about God, so much so that the psalmist regularly recalled his practices of meditating on God's truth with regularity throughout his life. Paul even commanded Timothy, think over what I say, dwell on it. Deep thinking precedes rich theological discovery. Shallow thinking produces shallow theology. Luther discovered truth only after serious thought. Like Luther, we cannot expect to discover a deep biblical or theological truth without the same type of focus, deep thinking, and serious devotion. And after all, the proof is in the pudding. Without Luther's deep and serious thinking, the Reformation and church and Christianity, the way we know it, may have not ever come back, come around at all in the first place.
1: Yeah, no, that's really, really well said. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that bothers me, if I can be honest, is when I encounter people who just don't really seem to have an interest in deepening their faith or an interest in, you know, really participating in worship and and opening their heart there or wanting to know more about scripture or reading scripture. Because I'm just kind of like, you know, because people will be like, well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And I kind of want to be like, what are you going to heaven for? Like, why? Why do you want to if this doesn't interest you? you know like if it's not something that you want to really be you know ingrained into your soul and ingrained into your heart and you want to know Christ deeply and imitate Christ as much as you can like then why why do you want to go to heaven like what is that and i think that all goes back to like a misconception of heaven like we think you know we're going to see grandpa there and meet Abraham Lincoln or something. I mean, like we just have all these random thoughts about it. And yeah, there is a an extent where it's going to be a banquet or it's going to be a party and this, that, and the other. But like, it's also going to be the presence of God. <laughs> like the, the God who saved you, the God that, that has revealed himself in the person of Jesus and in the pages of scripture and through the work of the spirit. And like, I just have a hard time understanding people that like, don't take that seriously or don't want to, you know, put in some mental work and really kind of shape themselves through that. So
0: well said, good words. And just your point, you know, as a quick recap, in week one, we talked about Gnosticism. And much to your point, you know, think hard and long about this. One of the reasons that it is important what we do in this world and in this life and with everyone else is that the physical world matters and that there is a new creation, a new redeemed creation that we will exist in, um, that the physical does matter to God so much that he came in the person of Christ. And then week two, talking about the Trinity, why do you want to worship something that you don't even care about? Um, right. You know, last week's discussion was pretty, you know, pretty heady, pretty thick, but I think it helps us wrap our minds around in whatever way we can, the mystery of God and just how amazing it is. Right. You know, it, it can be a little overwhelming, a little difficult, but like you said, to your point, John, why why do you just want to clock it in and clock out whenever there's just this big mystery to discover and uncover and engage with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It it would be a lot like your doctor clocking in and clocking out and being someone who's like, "Well, I got my degree, like I don't need to continue learning best medical practices." You wouldn't want to go to that doctor. You know, like you wouldn't want to go to a doctor who's a 40-year veteran doctor who hasn't spent the past 40 years working on his craft and and continuing learning like what are the things that have developed in medicine in over 40 years time? I mean, Give you an example. I talked to you you a couple of weeks ago on here about how I've been watching the show Mad Men. And I was just kind of laughing at it, watching it a couple of nights ago, because one of the characters is expecting a baby. And every other couple of minutes, she's picking up a cigarette or a glass of wine or whatever. And I'm just like, golly, like even back in the 1960s, people were pregnant and consuming alcohol and smoking and stuff, which is a huge no-no now. But we know that because of you know, doctors who have developed best medical practices and kept up to tabs on that kind of thing. And I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, if, if you had a doctor that didn't do that, you wouldn't want that doctor. And if your spiritual life, if you're just kind of like, well, I checked the box, like I got my salvation degree, like don't need to do anything else. Like I I don't, I don't really know, man. Like it just, it puzzles me.
0: Yeah. Or if you were the doctor, right. You go and get your degree and you say, well, I learned how they did medicine a long time ago. And that's, that's all I need to know. Right. Yeah. You're going to spend so much of your life doing something that you're not even that good at because you didn't invest any time, let alone the eternity of your existence. You know, Travis had a sermon two weeks ago now, I think this point about that thin little line and that we invest so much time and energy into that thin little line that is our lives and that there's this whole eternity that we forget about and we don't, we don't really prepare for it or think about it or really intellectually engage with it beyond coming on Sunday mornings and bowing our heads when someone on stage prays. Well, at this point, now that we're doing season or episode three, we're about 75% done. How do you feel about that, John? Anything that's come to your mind over the past couple of weeks? Anything that you've learned about yourself or your beliefs or anything that the reading is causing in you?
1: Um, A, I'm, to be honest, I'm kind of relieved we're coming to the close of, of season two. It's been fun, but I'm also like, uh, there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into this. Each time you and I do it, and I'm, I'm looking, you know, I know Patrick puts in a lot of work, so I'm looking forward to all of us just kind of getting a little bit of a break. But I have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed, it It, it allows me the time to work out some things that I probably wouldn't do if I didn't have the forced deadline of the, of the podcast every week. And even in this series, it has reminded me that I need to take the time to, like I said earlier, you know, I made an off-the-cuff statement. That was a probably her- heretical statement, so... Even in this kind of thing, like through this series, I've just been reminded, you know, I need to even take the time to just make sure I sort of polish or, um, you know, refine even the way I talk about certain things, especially these kind of weightier theological matters.
0: So so it's been
1: beneficial to me in that way.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I think for me, at least where we're sitting in our current climate of church, culture, politics, I think it's really easy to get sucked into the way things are now. And there's a, a huge, huge history and depth. To Christianity into our faith and our, you know, our faith family that we, we've kind of forgotten about. And that could just be where we are in the Western world. It could be part of being Baptist and rejecting a lot of other traditional things. But much like we talked about earlier today, I, I've just really enjoyed and appreciated this depth and richness of reconnecting with our religious spiritual ancestors as we talk about a lot of these things and re-engage and very much sharpen ourselves. And our faith, and think about well, what are the places where maybe I'm falling off the trail a little bit, or maybe the places where I'm flirting with something that I may not want to, or may not have intended along mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. So yeah. So this week, getting into this week's work, we are talking about the Bible and Revelation specifically, and largely not some Revelation, of the, the book, not Revelation, Revelation the, the book, the concept. Yeah, Revelation, lower ca- lowercase r. Yeah. And some of the ways that we. Christians have historically attempted to overrule or change the content of the Bible. So today we're talking about messing with scripture. So we will, much to your your point, John, we'll kick off and start talking about revelation with a lowercase r. So what is revelation exactly? You've probably heard this term a lot. You've probably heard it thrown around. It is definitely, well, there is a book called Revelation, capital R, Revelation. It's in the Bible. But we are not talking about that. Very simply, the term revelation means the revealing, the uncovering, or the, the disclosure of something. By its basic premise, that which is revealed is not something we previously knew or understand, but is absolutely new. In this case, when we talk about revelation, lowercase r, within the Christian context, we mean specifically the ways in which God has revealed God's self to humans. The way in which God has broken into human history to make himself known personally personally and specially. These things which have happened, that have been preserved and recorded in the history of Israel and later Christians. So that is what we are talking about when we say revelation, the way that God has revealed God's self to us through the course of time and has been preserved in stories and writing that we still use. This is all important because as we noted in the last episode and became pretty evident, God is something very much other. If you have not listened to our episode on the Trinity, please go do. Um, Mm -hmm. It is thick, but it it was a fun conversation for us. And at the end, I think I quipped that my face felt like it was going to (laughs) melt off. Yeah. Um, But because God is something very much other, that makes God very difficult to know. And this isn't mutually exclusive with being made in the image of God, but we can still have certain qualities of God without fully being able to comprehend all of God. So we believe that God in love, desiring to be made, um, desiring to be known, made various accommodations to meet humanity where we are in this place in our created states.
1: Yeah, and on that idea of revelation... um... Paul uses the word a lot. That's translated translated mystery. This mystery has been revealed, right? So, um, we're actually doing a Bible study through Ephesians with a group right now, and he uses that term a lot in Ephesians. And the words revelation and mystery in the Greek or in in their time mean more what I think you and I would kind of um, maybe define as as something being a surprise, not in the sense of like surprise, but uh, the way it's been that I've heard it illustrated. Is imagine it's December twentieth, and there are gifts under your tree, and they're wrapped up, and you don't know you don't know what they are because they're hidden, right? They're behind gift wrap. Um, when you unwrap it on Christmas morning, then the mystery has been revealed, right? Like whatever it is that you thought was back there, now you know what it is, and so that's kind of the idea uh, when you see these words like revelation or or mystery. Um, that's kind of the idea it's getting getting at is that there was something that we couldn't quite see a clear picture of. You know, maybe we saw the shape of it. Maybe we could shake the box and hear it and take a guess at what was un- under there. But come Christmas morning, we uh, we unwrap the paper and now we know what it is, right? So that's kind of the idea that's being conveyed.
0: Mm. And a lot of theologians will use this idea of otherness. You know, we we have the imprints of God in our lives, but God is other, right? God exists in a way that we can't really comprehend. And so it requires that God reach down into a way and express himself in a way that we can understand in our finite beings, And so theologians really kind of divide revelation into two main categories, general revelation and specific revelation. And this is important, especially in our context. And may even help as we talk about other people or just our engagement with the world. And a good way to think about the difference between general and specific revelation is just imagine that you were walking in the woods some Father's Day afternoon, and you came upon a really cool looking house out in the middle of nowhere. You wouldn't think to yourself, wow, this literally came out of nowhere. Likely, without even having seen the construction, the raw materials, the workers, or even the person who drew up the plans and designed the place, you would know that the house was formulated and created by someone, even if you don't know who that person was. If you walked around the house or you could walk inside, you could see little bits of the person who designed it, the colors, shapes, the layout, the ways it may or may not be oriented to get the most morning sun in the living room, or the size of the kitchen, you could observe the house and see the various stylistic choices. And they would tell you something about the architect, but none of those things would tell you who the architect is or give the architect a name. You could not know the architect personally by seeing a house, seeing the house. And we're also assuming there are no pictures of the architect in the house or his family. That would be a pretty pretty good giveaway. Now, imagine that you see the house and are in awe and think to yourself, I wonder who created this amazing house. And while you're standing there, a man comes out the front door and says, hey, I'm Larry. I'm the architect of this house. Now you can know the architect, Larry. You know his name. You know what motivates him, why he built the house the way he did, where he did, and for what purposes, because you met Larry personally. Yeah. Now you know Larry. This is like specific and general revelation. General revelation is looking around the world and experiencing the house, air quote, house. Without knowing the Christian God, you can think, wow, this world, this creation is amazing. Something just must have been behind, of all, behind all of this but you wouldn't necessarily know that it's God or that what God it is or that God has the name or what type of God it is that created this. Just you would say, wow, this is awesome. There has to be something behind this. Specific revelation is the point when you met Larry the architect. Larry stepped out of the house and said, hey, I'm Larry. Let me identify myself so you can know me personally. This would be, for our purposes, God speaking to Noah or Abraham or Moses. This would be God seeking out Hagar and her celebrating that she had been experienced and seen by God. The greatest form of knowing God personally, of course, is the person in Jesus, right? Where God takes the additional, additional steps for us to know him personally in his character. Jesus is the full embodiment of God in a way that we can know him personally and fully as we might in our own form. It's a relatable form to us. It is the best way that we can understand God because it is the way that we are.
1: Yeah, well said. And I would concur with everything. I would maybe say another another example of general and specific revelation would be like general revelation being seeing Sam and I's picture on the website or seeing us walk down the hall or seeing us on stage versus specific revelation being people listening to the podcast and telling you, hey, I feel like I know you guys better or taking us up on our invitations for us to take you out for coffee or lunch. That would be specific revelation as well. So, <laughs> uh, but all well said, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's just this, you know, the, the whole idea is you could step outside and recognize in awe, wow, this is amazing. There has to be something behind it without personally understanding or knowing the force that is behind all of it. Yeah. But yeah. in the course of history, God steps through that veil of that unknownness, that mysterium and says, hey, I'm God. I want to know you and I want to have a relationship with you. And these are the things you can know about me and the way I want to share life with you. So that is where as Christians, we have in all of our writing these experiences that we have with God throughout history, where we experience Him in a in a way that is relatable and understanding to us, that culminates in the person of Jesus, the indwelling in human form, God. Right. So these things which have been revealed to us by God, like I said, have been recorded into various books, letters, poems, and all types of writings since long before the life of Jesus and even after the life of Jesus. And you know, it's what's really amazing. Just a sidebar is how long we've had a lot of these writings and just how little the writings have changed over time, that people thought them so imp- important and authoritative that the margin of change has been so, so tiny.
1: Yeah, they they preserved them. Whether they are the, the word of God or not, the people who had access to them believed that they were and believed that they were to the point that they preserved them as accurately as they could for us and um, took it so seriously in doing that. But at the same time, yes, it was written by humans. It didn't fall out of the sky. Inspiration is a part of that, as well. So, Sam, like, what? How would you? How would you describe like the way inspiration works mm-hmm. to someone?
0: Yeah, and I think you would get a lot of different answers depending on who you talk to. <laughs> yes, you will. Um, that is my little disclaimer, but I would say that the Bible didn't fall out of the sky. The Bible is true and honest to form as God expressed it to humans for it to be widespread and recorded. So there is a pure message that is written by human hands.
1: Yeah, and then I would add to that, there's also inspiration by the Holy Spirit in the recognition of what is inspired by the Spirit and what is not. Because as we've said before on this podcast somewhere, these weren't the only writings that were going around. And we, we may get into this later on because this will come up with, I think, one of the heresies we're going to talk about. But the recognition of what was inspired and what was not by the early church, by the early church followers, and the broad consensus that they had um, across continents on what was inspired and what was not. Um, that's a part of inspiration as, inspiration as well. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll maybe get in, into that a little bit more uh, here in a few minute, minutes, but I think that's one thing to just kind of tuck away in the back of your mind.
0: So as we, we talk about Scripture and Revelation, we got to talk about the formation of Scripture and how it all came together in the formation of the canon. Mm-hmm. So while there were lots of different writings which circulated circulated around the Christian Christian world, which were considered authoritative, it really wasn't until the late 4th century when an African bishop wrote a letter to the other churches proposing what he believed should be recognized as the Christian canon or the, the correct order, the correct collection of books. Coincidentally, he wasn't really putting forward anything which people didn't agree with at that time by and large. And in truth, he was more or less just closing the canon and hoping that all the Christians would come to agreement around which books of the Jewish Bible would form our Old Testament and what writings about the life and mission of Jesus and the apostles would be included in the canon's New Testament? Any larger significant disputes which may have existed between Christians of different areas around the Christian world, he was hoping to end. But like I said, it was everyone kind of already had this unofficial canon that they used. He just wanted to officially put a seal on it to close it out.
1: Yeah. And you use that word canon, which is a those of us that have gone to Bible colleges or, or religiously affiliated colleges and had to take Old Testament, New Testament classes and seminaries and things like that. I've heard that. Probably the average person has not, but it's not canon in the sense that, you know, a a huge thing of metal that shoots balls of lead, but it's actually spelled with um, C-A-N-O-N. So it's different. And I think it's Latin. Anyways, it just means measuring stick or measuring rod. And so a canon of scripture just means like a sort of measuring rod or a framework is a word I like to use to describe it. Basically, when you talk about them closing the canon, it's just saying like, okay, there are no more works that we can reliably consider inspired for a variety of reasons. Um, Maybe we'll get into that on a future podcast series. Mm -hmm. But there are no more works that we can reliably consider inspired. So as far as any future writings being uh, a measuring rod or a measuring stick for our faith and who God is, we're we're just going to consider it sort of closed and what I do find interesting as well Sam is it was around this time that that Jewish people closed their Canon as well as the the what we call the Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures there have not been new writings that have been that have been added to that as well which I I just find really interesting um mm-hmm. so and that's an that's a whole other discussion on another podcast also but yeah just something to keep in mind
0: yeah because the other great silence that you have is during the Exile and then you right. have a new collection of books, and then it's silence again. So that's, I had not thought about that, but that is also really cool. Talking back on formation of the canon, it's, as these books were being decided, the collection of what would be in it, what ones, they weren't chosen arbitrarily, but there was a set of guiding principles which helped the early Christians decide what would be maintained in the biblical canon and which would be excluded. It's worth noting that some Christians in areas around the Christian world had a different collection that they may either use just for discipleship or for learning or specifically for worship, but They sat down and said, well, let's all have the same one that we look at. And there are a couple of guiding principles that they were working within. So the first thing when considering a book, whether it be added to the canon or not, was apostolic authority. We talked about this, I think, in episode one, but it basically means of the apostles, the the 12 disciples who then were sent and became apostles. Are there any books that we can attribute to them? Because they knew Jesus, they followed Jesus. Other than Jesus himself, they are the best record of things of Jesus that we have.
1: Yeah, most reliable source.
0: Yeah, so uh, apostolic authority is the first one. So either written by someone very close to an original apostle or an apostle himself.
1: Yeah, an important note there is you might be like, well, Mark and Luke, they weren't part of the 12 disciples, which is a good point, but they were associated. Mark was associated with Peter, considered sort of his scribe, or we'd say maybe secretary, and Luke was that for Paul. And then Paul's another one that you're like, well, he wasn't part of the 12 disciples, but he had seen the risen Jesus in a vision. Plus he was very, very close to the 12, um, worked alongside Peter, um, and then obviously affiliated with James some as well as you'd read about in the book of Acts. So yeah, but that's apostolic authority. Mm -hmm.
0: And then another good thing, another criteria, apostolic authority, then how widely used was it? Was there a tradition of being used, you know, was it used in a multitude of contexts, right? There were some writings in Rome that you see a lot of Romans using, there are some writings in the Middle East that they were using, there's even this thing called the Didache which, with a lot of instruction, but not everyone was using it, and it wasn't attributed to an apostle or someone who learned from an apostle. So that was a text they were like, well, we're not quite sure this should be included because it doesn't necessarily check all of these boxes. And then finally, what was the content of the text? So apostolic authority, how widely used was it? Did it have a tradition? And then what is the context of it? Did it communicate the message of God necessary for salvation and Christian living? Was it consistent with all of the other texts? Did it have the Mm -hmm. same message? Or was it being put out by a different group like the Gnostics who were trying to insert a different gospel along the way?
1: And that's, I think, a, a thing that we overlook a lot is the consistency in the text that these are, for the most part, written by several different authors and yet tell a consistent story. And I think that's another thing that points to inspiration as well. But it's also important to note the wide acceptance, um, because you have cases where there are writings that were not widely accepted. And when we say widely accepted at this, I mean, by the time the canon gets closed, I mean, Christianity is on three or four different continents. I mean, it's, it's into Africa, it's into Asia, it's gone into Europe. I guess that's three, but possibly further. We don't know. We know there was a large library of Christian texts in Alexandria, which uh, was in Egypt, and um, was in, during a persecution all burned. We've lost all of all of that, but we know it was there. So just the wide acceptance, uh, it it kind of went viral for its day, and and in a way that that things didn't, particularly things that were anti empire <laughs> So the 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 fact that it did is just quite quite remarkable.
0: Well, let's get back to heresies specifically, because this is this is why we're all here, right? Isn't it? So yes. we bring up all of this about the formation of the Bible, because in the same way, necessity is the father of invention. You could say that heresy is the father or mother of theological agreements. So behind the African bishop, he has a name, he's Athanasius. Um, asking his, behind his letter asking all of Christendom to agree on a standard selection of religious texts. There was various incidences of certain Christian groups trying to challenge the understood list of inspired authoritative, authoritative texts or act outside beyond it. And this is where we get our heresies that we're going to talk about today. The heresies of Montanism and Marcionism. And we'll digest what these specifically mean in great detail in just a second. But as you probably picked up on, these were ancient heresies which came out because some people disagreed with the way the Bible was put together, or they disagreed with the authority that the Bible had over their life and faith and that of the regular everyday believer. In case you're trying to get ahead of us, no, there, there was no dispute over the actual gospel of Jesus or hidden letters. That's not what we're talking about here. That would be largely a completely different heresy altogether. We're largely talking about the canon as the unofficial canon at the time. And of course, quick disclaimer, if you find yourself belonging to one of these tendencies, you are not a heretic. You know, it's just an opportunity to think about it and decide, where did this thought come from? Do I need to do some more research to look into it to figure out why I came to this belief or maybe what is the right proper belief and really dig into church history and our ancient Christian predecessors and fathers and find a new direction to go. So our first one, Montanism, I know these are really obscure words. This is the Mm -hmm. the first heresy of our day and it, it arose in the 2nd century and it was named for Montanus of Papuza. and I'm probably butchering this word but it, it's in modern day Turkey that's a good and guess yeah. man yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. they're just a bunch of consonants and very few vowels uh, but in brevity the heresy of Montanism is synonymous with any emphasis on inspired authoritative prophecy that goes beyond scripture and claims to communicate any new truths for belief and practice by all Christians during the 1st and 2nd century where Montanus when he came about the Middle East the Middle Eastern Christianity was very charismatic. So that is the context of where he came from, a very charismatic Middle Eastern Christian church. Um, mind you, this is the footprint of the Roman Empire, all Christian at this point are largely Christian. So we don't have the, the Muslim presence that we do there. It was largely Christian at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And so much as we'd associate Pentecostalism as charismatic, it's kind of that, very much in the spirit, very much focused on the Holy Spirit and prophecy and that type of thing. But note, I said it was like Pentecostalism. Pentecostals are not heretics. Back to the Middle Eastern Christians, they were charismatic and they believed prophecy was a gift and that it hadn't ended, ended with the prophets or the apostles, but continued and was still given to people. And these words of God needed to be heard and needed to be followed. We talked a little bit earlier upon an agreed canon, and there's a good reason in this instance to close the canon of the Bible, because at one end, I don't think there's any practicing Christian who would say that God has stopped acting, speaking, or engaging with humanity in the world. However, without an authoritative measuring stick, like John said, how do you measure the things which charismatic people are claiming is a prophecy from God? And it doesn't have to be charismatic. It could be anyone. I went to school in Waco for a long time, and there were, you know, various sects that people talked about of different ways to do it. And I think there's a long world history of people with new revelations. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead.
1: As you said, uh, heresy is the the father or the mother of orthodoxy. It was cause and effect. So you had mm-hmm. all these things happening and the church, it, again, the, the narrative that comes from like the Da Vinci Code and things like that is the church was this powerful force and it wanted to squash all these, you know, other just as legitimate gospels. But there, again, you're talking about something in orthodox Christianity that was widely accepted across continents. And um, the other thing about it is You talked about the measuring stick. Yeah, they realized they had to have something so that people could have authentic faith. They had to have something by which people could measure that so that they could say, hey, this is something that's of God, this is not. I think it's the book of James that talks about like testing the spirits to see what is of God and what is not. Well, you you can't do that if you don't have agreed upon measuring stick. And to give you another example, you know, we're talking about my pool. Uh, We were dealing with a leak uh, earlier on this, this summer. And I had to, I had to figure out how bad was the leak, how much was it leaking. And I couldn't do that without a ruler. Like I I literally would go out every night and measure how much water was in the pool so that I could report like, Hey, I measured, I've lost this much in one day or or whatever. You just can't eyeball that and be like, Oh, I think I've lost, you know, three inches or whatever. Like you you have to have something to measure it by. And that's, that's, that's what this basically was. It it was the church needed to say, here are like, like we do believe God is, as God's spirit is moving, God's spirit is active, but we have to figure out how to define that for people so that people can know what is of God and what is not of God.
0: Mm-hmm. And much like we talked about earlier, Jesus is the pinnacle of what we know about God embodied in human form. So it we need to have a record or a consistency to say, well, if there's any new word from God, how does it measure up against the things that we all agree God has said before in our past? Is it consistent with God's self? Um mm-hmm. But, you know, Montanus saw himself as one among all of the other prophets, still receiving prophecies and words of God, which he really thought Christians needed to know and obey. During their life, during his life, there was no closed canon, albeit there was that unofficial, agreed-upon of, agreed upon set of texts that existed. But you can bet your buttons his controversy helped it along. Yeah. And if it had all stopped there, or maybe he, maybe he had not been, maybe even if he had not been a self-appointed prophet, then... Perhaps we would think about him a little bit differently. He traveled around to the Roman Empire, establishing his own churches based upon his inspired prophecies. And these churches were known as the New Prophecy Churches. Part of his teaching included some weird things, like the belief that all of his followers should move to his hometown in Pupuza in modern-day Turkey to wait with him for the imminent return of Christ, which he revealed would happen there at that specific place. Another strange thing is that his followers were encouraged to remain celibate, even if they were married— that's certainly not way, one way to grow your follower pool.
1: <laughs> You're going to die out pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. If, uh... <laughs> um, and further, he rejected the exclusive claims of bishops to apostolic authority. Yeah, I think some people could get behind that. Um, and certainly rejected the identification of God's word with a closed book. The problem wasn't solely that he saw himself as a prophet or a self-appointed prophet. The, the crux of the problem for him was that he believed himself a prophet that was above critique or reproach. So a guy who thought he was getting these messages from God specifically, and there was nothing else that he could be measured against or stopped against.
1: Yeah, I think he, was he the one that said that the Holy Spirit would use his vocal cords like a, like a harp? Like a harp, uh, so, yeah. Some kind of weird phrase, like basically he thought the words in his mouth were beyond scripture, really.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, and you know, it very much sounds like the Old Testament prophets, that they they spoke for God, or they, right. they spoke because God was not embodied to speak, but... Yeah, that same idea, that his vocal cords were the harp strings, which God would speak through. And, you know, as we talk about this and we're talking about heresies, we should recognize and be careful to recognize that Montanus his followers were probably trying to cause a schism or trying to be troublemakers. Like many people who are otherwise faithful Orthodox Christians, they were living into certain convictions and trying to be faithful, much like the Pharisees. I think a lot of Pharisees get a bad rap, but I think the Pharisees were just trying to be as faithful as they possibly, possibly could be. Ancient accounts would go on to say that Montanus was very sincere in his faith and was deeply concerned about the growing reluctance to live in the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit. But his was an error because it opened Pandora's box, largely. Living in the Spirit is good. Living at the direction of the Holy Spirit is good, something we should each aspire to do. But without something to measure these notions against, like we've been talking about, how can you tell who is really carrying a word from God and who isn't? That's a good question. So, Whether the early church was justified in their denunciations of Monsonists or not, what we should hopefully agree is that any word we think we receive has to be consistent with the Bible and the person of Jesus, who is the epitome of revelation, as we have said a couple of times, and certainly consistent with the history of God's relationship with humanity. As with other heresies we've discussed, vestiges still live on today. I mentioned earlier that Pentecostalism isn't a form of Monsonism— However, there are some charismatic traditions within Pentecostalism which do appeal to new words or new revelations from God from very particular prophets and will hold them sometimes above our biblical text and the biblical witness. Another modern version of Montanism, as some would call it, is Mormonism, also known as the Latter-day Saints. Uh, just to give you an idea, the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a chief prophet who can produce new truths and their truths remain open to new revelations that can add or take away from their scripture.
1: Mm-hmm. Without
0: going into too much for the detail, you can probably see how this could really, really get out of hand if you don't have something to measure it against, if there's no rule and if there's no authority to gauge what might be true prophecy consistent with God. And the logical end is where would all of this new revelation end?
1: Right, yeah. and. and- that idea of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they don't have a closed canon. They, they have more scriptures than, than our, I mean, they, they consider our scriptures to be a part of their scriptures as well, but then they also have the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. And I think the Pearl of Great Price is the one that the prophet um, can add to, uh, basically receive a new prophecy or a new revelation and continue adding to that. But mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it, so. I, I can imagine something like that could get out of hand pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you have there are cases where prophets have contradicted one another, and um, it it looks suspiciously like just changing with the times. To be honest, but mm-hmm. that's we can't get into that right now.
0: Yeah, and you know, of course, if you have all things, then you have nothing. But yeah, under our second heresy of the day. So we just finished Montanism, this idea that uh, revelation and prophecy can supersede canon because of the importance of having the Holy Spirit alive in our lives. So the second one, Marcionism. I would venture to bet that out of the two we'll talk about today, this one, Marcionism, is more likely to have been heard probably by some of you, at least in name, and most likely collects the most modern Christians into its faith base.
1: Yeah, this is a trap I think our listeners are going to fall into if they fall into anything. Yeah,
0: Yeah, probably of most of these, except for maybe next week, but I think this is a big one. So at the same time, Montanus was running around Turkey, starting his new churches. Marcion was a Christian leader in Rome. He was thought to have been a bishop elsewhere in the footprint of the whole of the Roman Empire, but relocated to Rome, which would have been the center center of the political world as an effort to increase his influence. There were a couple of things that we should note that were not quite right about Marcion's theology, some of which overlapped with Gnosticism, which we talked about in episode one. However, the most problematic of his efforts was his insistence that the biblical canon could be reduced almost exclusively to the New Testament letters, the ones which were written by those from the Gentile world. Basically, he wanted to cut out anything that was too Jewish from the Bible, anything that was too Jewish he thought shouldn't be in there. John, last week you were talking about... Um, the Old Testament book of Leviticus, and we used it as our launching point for a teaser to this episode. And I said something to the effect of, why don't we just take Leviticus out of the Bible anyway? No one reads it. No one pays attention. No one knows what it means. Well, this is the heresy, which caused the ancient church to come around and say, no, you can't do that. This is important. It has to stay in here. And there were two primary reasons he wanted to do this. The first reason, he had a really difficult time reconciling good Jesus of the New Testament with angry God of the Old Testament. I think a lot of us can kind Those of- Those are his have, words. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people can have a difficult time with that, understandable. But to solve this problem, he concluded that the Father of Jesus Christ did not actually create the world. Instead, the creator of the world was an evil, no-good, dirty, rotten God whom he believed was Yahweh, which is the one and the same God worshipped by the Jews. This certainly has a heavy notes of Gnosticism laden deeply within it. The second issue, he believed anything that was too Jewish was irrelevant for the Christian. So whether it was the Old Testament or books of the New Testament with too much Jewishness, they just had to go. So everything from the beginning of the Bible, the Old Testament, up to the Gospels, as we consider the current order of the Bible, would be discarded entirely. And probably the book of Matthew and probably a couple of other ones, maybe the book of James. James was also a Jew. That would probably have to go. Martin Luther would probably agree that that has to go, but for another reason many, many other books. We would have a tiny, tiny fraction of our modern canon if he was allowed to do what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting that Marcin didn't just deny that these texts were useful to Christians, but the heart of the announcement was that they were not inspired the same way that the books by the Gentile Christians were inspired as they reveal Christ. Mm -hmm. So he had a hard time in these Jewish texts seeing how they related to Christ and thought that maybe they were just purely written by humans without any sort of God intention or God voice behind them his version of Christianity very much became dangerous and distorted and his limiting to Gentile writing functionally tried to separate Christianity from its Hebrew origins and divorce Yahweh from Jesus Christ. Although we don't see this per se, any effort to distort change or reduce the biblical witness would be considered some form of Marcionism.
1: know you're going to get into sort of a modern day approach to this here in a minute um or just ways that we kind of see the tentacles of this in in modern day times i think one way to illustrate is like you said just the idea of like well, why do we even have the old testament um i think it's important to note too like what it was really his context or his experience that that led him here and i think this is where we can see kind of modern uh, similar approaches to this uh the idea of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? So, for him, it was his experience, uh, really, the way he felt that he was treated by Jewish people. Um, now, certainly, this would not be descriptive of all Jewish people of his day. It couldn't possibly be, but in his particular experience, you know, at that, at that time, as we've said before, churches were growing. Churches, for the most part, were using synagogues, and synagogues started, you know, kind of, I don't know, feeling threatened or just, you know, being upset at maybe feeling like Christians were going too far with the God that that they worshipped. So they began kicking the churches out of the synagogues. And so really, I think his, I, as you said, he was probably sincere, but I think his uh, quote-unquote revelation was more based on his experience of perhaps being treated poorly by some Jewish people and then just saying like, okay, well, like to heck with all of you and everything that you believe and anything that's associated with you. And I see this today with Christianity because... Evangelical Christianity has gotten a bad rap the last several years for good reason. Um, A lot of the abuse scandals and the cover up of that and, you know, the accusations of, you know, racism and, and misogyny and things like that are all ugly and all need to be dealt with. But it would be going too far to toss out the baby with the bathwater. I've seen a quote say, you know, don't let a modern day Americanized Christianity distract you from being fascinated from a Middle Eastern rabbi from the first century right? It's Mm -hmm. like, let's not look at our current problems and our current practices and say, well, Jesus isn't worth it because of the way American Christians stumble and fumble. So the same thing I would say with that as, as what I would say with, with Marcy. And I think he did that. I think he went too far throughout the baby with the bathwater. And I think people can do that today with their disgust with what they see from practicing Christians. Um, they can dismiss the message altogether. And, and I just think that's, you know, um, unfortunate in a similar, similar take on this.
0: And I think you're right. And I, I don't think it, it is an anti-Semitism the way we would think about it today. Roger says very much the same thing in his book. I think it's just an anti-Jewishness. Um, and Dr. Olson went on to say that, you know, there was a point in time where Christians and Jews lived, you know, well together and kind of ventured in the same circles. And then it became a point where the Jews started throwing out the Christians and there became a large point Mm -hmm. of tension, between Jews and Christians. So I think perhaps just like we would, I mean,
1: if we, if we were letting someone use our building and then we thought that they were teaching something that was antithetical to what we believed, we would kick them out too. So it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily like they were like bearing pitchforks and torches and and whatnot. They considered it heretical to what they believed. Mm -hmm. Right. So they kicked the Christians out.
0: Yeah. And you know, this was another, another big problem. And Marcionism, by and large, became squashed, but that doesn't mean it doesn't rear its head from time to time, even in our personal lives. So while we may not want to do away with the whole of the Old Testament or come out and say something like that, sometimes we can be guilty of very much forming a canon within a canon, um, either because we don't want to include a piece of text or because we don't know how to include a piece of text. You know, a couple of easy ones I would think of Revelation is difficult. Ezekiel is particularly difficult. If you know what the first five chapters are saying, then please tell me no, because (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> uh, a, a good modern example is, and this is probably a loose example, but Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, um, but he would go into his Bible and he would cut out all the things of Jesus that were too miraculous or seemed too godly. And so you can see his Bible on display and it has just has huge things cut out. And so you could say, well, Thomas Jefferson has Marcionistic tendencies because he wanted to choose what he wanted to include in his canon and what things he wanted to kick out of it.
1: I, I was just saying another example is the, the slave Bible. Mm, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, a few days ago was Juneteenth and um, the slave Bible was a, a Bible that slave owners used and distributed to slaves in order to kind of keep them in subjection. And they had taken all references in the Bible to any sort of liberation out of the Bible so that what they had left was Out of 1,100 chapters in the Bible, I think there were only like 260 in the slave Bible. No, the whole book of Exodus was not included. So stuff like that. I mean, that's another example of it as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Even even in church these days, I'll make jokes with people and say, well, we're Baptist. We only read the New Testament. That's kind of a a tongue-in-cheek joke. But I I think it's true sometimes. If you go to a lot of, and it doesn't have to be Baptist, but I think a lot of modern Christian churches, like the Old Testament can be hard. Sometimes we don't know what to do with, you know the God of the Old Testament, or we just don't know what to do with stories or we don't know how to understand Ezekiel or Daniel, or you know we keep falling asleep every time we try to try to read Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and some of those other ones. Yeah. so what do we do? Do we just cut things out? You know, like Marcion, we deny the inspired nature of the text and the importance of it as it reveals God and his redemptive history to the world anytime we try to pick and choose things that we do and don't want to read. You know, we can't say, well, I don't understand Ezekiel, I'm just not going to read it, or I don't understand Revelation, or that's scary, so I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to lop it out of my Bible. We we can't do that, because they're inspired texts, we believe they're inspired texts. The tradition of Christians for thousands of years has been that these are inspired texts, and they belong side by side with the others, so we have to keep them in. So, for you, the listener, what what are the books that you cut out of your reading? Do you know mm-hmm. the Old Testament as well as you do the New Testament? Are there any books that you avoid reading if you're a Bible study teacher or someone who leads a small group are there any ones that you avoid teaching do you see the old testament as the beginning of jesus's story and redemption or do you see it as distinctly different from jesus's story in the new testament what are the books you don't read or avoid and if you're not quite sure maybe ask yourself well do i know what happens in deuteronomy deuteronomy leviticus exodus do i know what happens in first and second kings might five I,
1: chapters of ezekiel yeah
0: Yeah, it might give you a good idea of whether you've been avoiding things or not. So uh, Dr. Olson in his book, it's a great book. If you want to read more of what we're doing and even a lot of other topics we don't cover, you should get it. But he gives some antidotes for these heresies. For Montanism, he says, you have five things you really might want to consider if someone says that they have some sort of new prophecy or revelation that they want to share. Number one, does the prophecy promote the prophet over Christ? Is the message inconsistent with the writings of the apostles and the other biblical canon? Does it promote schism or separation over unity? Does it require a sacrifice of your intellect to accept a new idea? Does it exalt anything other than Jesus into the role of Messiah, leader, or Savior? And if you answer yes to any of these, then you or the person with the prophecy may have a little bit of a problem. And for Marcionism, the one where about cutting off pieces of the Bible, the best cure is a reverence for scripture reading and study of all of scripture from start to end, not necessarily in one sitting or in that chronological order. But you can do this with a lot of different reading plans. Use the lectionary. The lectionary is a great tool that we often don't use. But each reading for each day it will give you a New Testament, an Old Testament, and often, often a wisdom passage like a psalm each and every day. And these can help you to hold the Bible together and see them all in light of one another. And for anyone who would say, well, why do I want to use a lectionary? I know a lot of pastors who use it to preach from, and they say that it's wonderful because even on the days when something comes up, that the Bible or the lectionary still leads them to passages in the Bible that are still relevant and still meaningful, and even though they seem to be cut out, they still cover everything, and it still shows one unified body. So as we conclude, two new heresies for you to think about. Do you fall into either of these? Do you need to check your practices? Do you need to check your heart? Maybe you need to go back and trust the history and traditions of the church as it relates to doing right faith or orthodoxy. Be willing to think hard like Luther and put down your cell phone. Think long and hard over your beliefs and test everything within a community of Christ-centered Bible-honoring Christians. It's great to learn these heresies so that you know what's right from wrong, right? Heresies are the mother of orthodoxy. And the more you know, the easier it'll be to find these obstacles in your life that can get you back to your own faith. Remove the things that get in your way so that you can pursue Christ faithfully without any additional and unnecessary hurdles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say, you know, places to turn as well. Uh, you're listening to this podcast. So I mean things like that. I mean, there's so many free resources uh, from podcasts to the Bible Project. You hear me talk about that all the time. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So they do a great job explaining what is Leviticus talking about? What is Revelation talking about? And then they get into topics. Um, if you want to go a little bit deeper, like academically, there's a website called biblicaltraining.org that has a lot of materials, uh, free seminary level lectures and courses um, that that you can go through. Um, and I'll just say, I mean, don't take our word for it. Like, yeah, do, do your own digging. But what we have as scripture, it's pretty reliable. It's it's been agreed upon. It's there. Like, like we said before, I mean, there are so many things that, um, so many really sort of hoops that the writings had to jump through in order to be recognized as inspired. Um, you know, like it's okay to just be like, you know, these are, these are the inspired writings, um, that that lead us to who God is and how to have a relationship with him. Like after 2000 years, like you're not the person that like all of a sudden figured out that this stuff's bunk. Like (laughs) you're just not like people have thought about this and dedicated their lives to it. And it's, it's reliable and it's okay to, to land on that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, John, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Use us as a launching point. Don't trust us. There's lots of information that's been written about how the Canon was put together. All of the different things that the church fathers decided as it relates to orthodoxy and right belief But John, thank you for joining me again. Ellen, thank you for the series logo and all the creative things that you do. Patrick, a second shout out to you. Great job with all of the audio editing. We are so grateful for you and all of your talents. And we will see you next week for our next installment where we will talk about moralistic, therapeutic deism and what that is. What? Have a good one.
1: (laughs) Adios. Yeah. First, yeah. Uh, pa- pause this, Patrick. Your <laughs> I think your mic. You might need to move because it's picking up every time you inhale. Oh, when you were talking. Is so
0: better go here.
1: I, I can still hear it. it. Maybe not as much.
0: Or is it better if I just move it off to the side entirely?
1: That's a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. It was just every time you paused, I could hear you take a breath. Mm. And, I mean, it, and it wasn't like small. It was like, because I do that. Oh, I, I know something myself. It was. It was yeah. kind of loud.